Rabbi Blyweiss, lecture number 21. We are, we just started our assessment of Shlomo HaMelech, who is such an interesting figure, such a perplexing figure, and uh, I, uh, with everything else, can't really do proper justice to, uh, in, in treating him. I will try to get to the, in, into a bit of the enigma, the mystery of the man, uh, and hope to whet your appetite so you would look further into it beyond what I tell you. Um, we understand, we, when we last described him, we were talking about his throne, the Kisei of Shlomo HaMelech, that amazing, uh, that amazing chair that winds its way through history, and, uh, and one, one opinion at least indicates that it will be the same throne that Mashiach Tzidkenu will sit in, his descendant, Shlomo's descendant. We know that Shlomo's stature, this is new material, Shlomo's stature in the universe uh, from early on, and you remember, he, he was a good person. He asked for the right things. He was not interested in self-gain, as one can imagine a person with power, like a king, would ask for. He only wanted wisdom in order to rule the people, knowing how fraught and difficult such a position would be. And uh, Hashem rewarded him handsomely. And the Medrash tells us in Shira Shirim Rabbah that Shlomo HaMelech ruled the entire world. That would be the this world, the Tachtonim, the, uh, the lower region, as well as the Elyonim. The Gemara in Sanhedrin reinforces that, that from a Pasuk that he, he had, as it were, HaKadosh Baruch who shared with him his own uh, throne and thereby gave Shlomo power over the, the Margitian also says the male and the female demons. Lilith, as you were talking about earlier, danced in front of him. But I thought the king of the demons no, 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 we're not there yet. He's coming no, soon. Shlomo ruled over them. Hold off, hold off, you're ahead of me. Uh, he was um, so brilliant. He spoke, he was a, we call him a polyglot. He spoke multiple languages. He spoke fluent peacock and turtle. You know, he didn't just speak the language of humans, but he did that as well, the, the 70 languages. He could speak to the birds and the animals. He, that's how he got inside information because they, they, they snitched on all kinds of other elements. When he sat in trial, a bird would come and whisper what he had witnessed in Shlomo's ear and Shlomo could, could get at the truth. Couldn't he also like listen to the trees? Uh, I'm just gonna tell you that. He, uh, yes, he would, um, the, two came before him, you're, you're ahead of me, but I'll tell you the story. Two came before him to litigate, who had a, each one had a claim against the other uh, monetarily, and um, they were trying to figure out who owned the tree. And so Shlomo simply turned to the tree and, and asked, "Who is your rightful owner?" And the tree told him, and that was the end of the case. It's a good trick if you can Wait, do it. Could you speak every language in the world? Apparently, apparently that's what it was to literally rule over the upper and lower creatures. He was helped by a, a variety of angels and demons in, 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 uh, who danced before him in making his decisions and helping him rule the world. Shlomo was credited with creating um, very, very important bodies of water, reservoirs, what's called the Yam Shel Shlomo, which was a very intricate uh, piece of furniture. Uh, but hard to, hard to convey, and, and, and it takes up a certain amount of, of, of space in the early, early, early chapters of Malachim and the Mufarshim. Go into great deeds. A big machlok is about how the Yamshel Shlomo uh, actually worked. Um, but to the best of our knowledge, it was a precursor to the classic 
bathhouse that is credited to the Romans and then later to the Turks. But there is really, you know there's no such thing as a Turkish bathhouse. The Turkish just ripped it off from the Romans, and there really isn't any such thing as a Roman bathhouse who got it from Shlomo. He understood how to manipulate all the elements of the world, water as being an example, to know how to maximize its efficiency um, towards human ends. Did he speak What's that? And, did he speak it was, that's a good question of the evolution of languages. It's impossible for us to really know what is, what is, what is around, what's not been around. But um, presumably, he spoke whatever variant it was. Uh, the, the, um, <laughs> we know we know many people can speak languages. It was a prerequisite for a Sanhedrin gedola. I refer you to the first chapter of Sanhedrin um, for people to speak seventy languages. Um, Mordechai famously spoke, uh, Mordechai was a master, he's called, his secondary name was Mordechai Bilshan, Bilashon, because he completely understood languages, remember how he eavesdropped and understood the two assassins uh, and could speak their language, they didn't realize that they could be understood, yeah. We talked about that last time, yeah, that, was, that was how we concluded our last, our last discussion. Could Shlomo? Can I, what, what does that have to do with Shlomo? Oh, I don't know, I'm okay. Yeah, decent. Like what? Let's go to Shlomo. I'm not so interesting. I just wonder what languages you speak. Me? Yeah, besides Hebrew and English. Ah, no, I, uh, I speak French. Oh, really? Yeah. What was it? Parle Francais. Can you say good? Oh. I did, yeah. Have you ever heard? Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I once had a student of mine. No, no, no. Oh, it's relevant. Come, come, John. Yeah, yeah, I said you. No, no, no. Hold down. I was a student of mine who was actually from Doomsbury Gorge or something like that, some like a place really nowhere's land. Don't know That's it. Where'd he go? So he today actually is somewhere down here, Columbus or Cincinnati or something, whatever. He's a very nice guy. So he very much wanted to learn Yiddish. So he got a harusa with a guy in the mirror on Saturday nights. Learn Yiddish. So one Sunday, comes and he says, Rebbe, ask me, I'll translate as we go along, what's Mahmoud? How am I doing? So I said, you know, Shmero, what's Mahmoud? How are you doing? He says, Boch Hashem Echbin Ayyid. Thank God I'm a Jew. Nishnor Echbin Ayyid. Not only am I a Jew, Echbin Aben Torah. Vos Ken Zain Besser from there. Not only am I a Jew, but I'm a Ben Torah. What can be better than that? I gave him a big hug. I said, Shmero, if you don't learn one more word of Yiddish, you've got it. That's, it. that's beautiful. I'm sorry, I no, no, thank you. Thanks for that uh, <laughs> <laughs> elevation. The um, Shlomo, Shlomo, based on the Gemara in Gitin, based on the Gemara in Gitin, um, it, it says ambiguously there that Shlomo created some kind of luxury chariot. I refer you to the more contemporary commentary of the um, Ben the, the Ben Yehuda from the 19th century, the Ben Ishchai. Um, who says, who interprets that Shlomo created an early electronic car. They had technology that, that was forgotten for centuries and seems to be uncovered in, modern, in the modern industrial revolution. Um, ben Ishchai elaborates and says that he uncovered principles of modern science. Uh, again, the motorized coach was one of his, was one of his ben, creations. Ben Ishchai is the 19th century Baghdad. But he interprets this Gemara accordingly. And it's fairly persuasive. They would um, serve Shlomo 
fresh fish before they before they cut open the fish. They said, "Is this you know is His Majesty ready to have his dinner? We're going to um, fillet these fish." But the fish were still swimming around before they killed them, and the fish would scream out to Moshe to to, to Shlomo, ask begging for mercy, uh, and 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 he and they said, "Please spare us." And he turned to them and he spoke in their language and said. Isn't this why you were created to serve men? And apparently all creatures understand about themselves that they're here to serve human beings. They don't have a problem with that. Meaning Shlomo in asking this is not being cruel. It's simply a matter of fact question. The fish responded, yes, yes, that's fine. It's just that now we're pregnant. So that if you cut us open, we'll never fulfill our, our, our tachlis. You know, it's in this week's parsha. Parsha Noah, not in Gracious, some people mistakenly understand that we're given the mitzvah to be, to, to be fruitful and multiply. And animals also are charged with, uh, with recreating. And so they say, we're pregnant. And so he, um, he says, oh, that's different. And he actually has them placed in a barrel until they can give birth. At which point, then, then he, has them, uh, he has them filleted and properly fried and turned into a delicious fish and chips dinner. Yes. Yeah, it does, doesn't it, right now? The, uh, Wait, Rabbi, what do you mean it, they're charged with, like it's a mitzvah? What's that? No, no there's no such thing. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a mitzvah. When you don't have the chirach hofshis, when you lack freedom of choice, only human beings uniquely have freedom so of choice. Like that's part of their right, it's part of what's, it's, it's hardwired into them to recreate. Um, we're told that Shlomo wrote each of his svarim in the 70 languages so that the whole world would benefit from his, vis- from his wisdom. Um, with all of this, you would imagine, and remember, this is, most of these qualities are gained at a relatively young age. This teenager is now, is now literally on top of the world, and, and the Medrash info, uh, emphasized this in Shmos Rabbah. Apparently, Shlomo retained utter humility throughout everything. For example, when he had, um, when it was time to do the Ibor Hashanah to determine whether it was, was going to be a year with two Adars or one, he deferred to God, Hanavi. Remember Vayomer David al God? God was still around, and uh, G A D in English, and, uh, and, and Shlomo deferred to him. He didn't take credit, he only used his gifts in order to, do, to perform his role, but he didn't usurp other people's role. Now, Shlomo's greatest activity in his lifetime was building the base of Mikdash. He waited, he waited four years into his term as king before he began, um, even though really the, pro- the process had been begun by his father, by David. David had set the infrastructure, had, 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 had established everything. We remember, remember that David was not permitted to build the actual building, but he got everything ready and he gave full instructions to Shlomo about how to go about doing that. All the, gold, all the building materials, for example, were all there and lined up. They had the gold and the copper and the silver and the iron, the wood, the Avne Shoham, special stones. Um, but he waited four years because he wanted to make sure it was a clean and round number, specifically 480 since. You can take out, you can take out your timelines. Uh, close, but not quite. Yitzias Mitzrayim. It was an exact 480 years, and these numbers are important. And Kabbalistic terms, there's a lot to be understood from this. The, the, in, four, in, four, in 480 years prior, um, the, the Jews came out of Mitzrayim. Make a note of these lacunas, of these breaks in history, because we see that so much seems inevitable. 
Um, we're going to say that from we're going to see that the first temple lasts exactly how many years? Four hundred and ten years. Followed by how many years of exile? 70. A clean seventy. Yet another four hundred and eighty. Followed by by Shani, a perfect four hundred and twenty years. Each with absolute precision. All showing a Kaddish Baruch Hu's divine hand guiding events in history. Ashkocha Pratis. The, uh, the, the, the notion of divine providence, things that are happening in our world are in fact not mistaken. It's all by plan. It doesn't mean he diminishes our freedom of choice, but we're meant to see a Kaddish Baruch Hu's role in the game. And we're going to spend some time talking about the years uh, because they're important and, they, and the, the secular world adopts the Christian counting and, and messes it all up. But it's not our tradition. One mnemonic, if you'd like to remember the number of years, this is for the Balaturim. If you want to remember the number of years of the first temple versus the second temple, it's referred to in the precious olive oil that was used in the Avoda. Um, it's called Shemen. What kind of Shemen is it? Shemen Katis. Shemen Katis, purely <coughs> finely crushed Shemen, olive, uh, the olives finely crushed. And if you break up the Chaf Taf Yud Taf, in its gematria, um, chaftaf is the that refers to the 420 of the second temple. That's 420 plus yudtaf is um, 410. That's the first temple. Got that, mnemonic? Good little trick. Yes. We always know that we shouldn't cut off the mitzvah. We should. We shouldn't cut off the mitzvah. No, we we shouldn't. We shouldn't. We should take the first opportunity to uh, do a mitzvah. Yeah, for sure. Right. Zrizim magdimim the mitzvahs. Where the people who are enthusiastic run to do mitzvahs before everybody. Right, so why did Shlomo wait four years? Um, so it's true, but this was through the nevuah that he knew to do this. Ah, okay. Was, he was told explicitly to do it, and then at the first available opportunity, he did it. It wasn't his own decision. Not only that, in fact, we're, we're going to see this, Shlomo is credited with immense zrizus, with exactly this quality of an enthusiasm, the minute he had the opportunity to build it, he ran to do it. So his waiting was not was not uh, his own. That was that was uh, with divine command. So 480 years Lord, after Yitzias Mitzrayim, Shlomo's building the temple. Elon is that is there number stuff like that today? Like, can you see? Oh, so we're gonna we're gonna spend time on this. Yeah. But you realize that modern history, and I'm thinking of modern since Chorban Bayis Sheni, which in the secular calendar is usually estimated around the year 70 of the Common Era, um, feels decidedly less deliberate. It seems like it's fuzzy and random. Nothing's random in a Kaddish Baruch's world. But you have that distinctly arbitrary feel to the flow of events, which is in stark contrast with these times, which everything is, such, is, such, is working in such a beautiful precision. Everything just, you know, 480 years, followed by 410 years and, and, and the like. Um, you get the semblance that, you know, that this is just everything is an accident in these days. Right. And that's part of the contemporary gullus, what's called gullus edom. That's the characteristic. It's, it's described as the gullus of Hester Punning, of Hashem's hidden face. And when Hashem's hidden, as it were, is hiding his face, not to be taken literally, what it means is that we perceive the world through as if several layers of gauze all kind of fuzzy and blurry, giving us that illusion of, of, of arbitrariness, which we have to remind ourselves, that's one of the reasons to learn history, that the world is anything but. So just like, that's just that's like you can look at your own body and see the incredible harmonious precision with which a Kaddish Baruch assembles it so that it should work and be here at our disposal so we can function in the world, 
and do amazing things, so too we have to look at all of life and all of history as being that way, even though it doesn't appear that way. And we're, le- we're living in a world that's profoundly nihilistic, denying the order and saying, nah, it's all pointless. We're all just kind of floating <laughs> atoms in the cosmos, and what's the difference? We have we the Jews have to have to raise our voice and say no no it's not like that. Not that our Yitzhakara like about Yitzhakara was them. Like about Yitzhakara their Yitzhakara is our Yitzhakara like our thinking that like things are random and stuff. That's a good question. Uh, there's a lot of things you can say about our Yitzhakara today that, that, that being different, but I yeah, know. I think that's certainly a part of it. It's the, one of the ways that, um, that one of the tricks of the Yitzhakara to to help to help us continually block out a Kaddish Baruch and the purpose and meaning of the world. Um, isn't that a thing that is, is that it took longer to build Sloan and Palace than it did for the big movement? Yes. Because... Excellent. Good for you. It's 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 mamish. It's it's psukim and mefarshim and melachim. Yes, it takes longer. Well, it was deliberate. It was to show that for my own needs, eh, feh, who needs it? Shlomo Shlomo was deliberately a little bit uh, took his time to show that that's a less priority. But when it comes to building a kaddish baruch the shechina's own house, that we do with utter utter uh, enthusiasm and zeal. So that's that's what he does. Um, how does that, let's break down, remind ourselves, how does the 480 years break down from um, Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim? You got 40 in the desert, followed by 14 in Gilgal, northeast of, of Jericho, followed by 369 in, excellent, Shiloh. After Shiloh, 13 in Nov, excellent, followed by 44 in Givon, we just talked about Jib. And um, and then and then um, finally after the forty four we're now time to build a base of mikdash, the gra on the uh, Gemara in Sota <coughs> tells us that he builds them. Well, the medrash tells us that he builds the base of mikdash with these special stones that he finally cuts by way of the shomir, which we're going to have to go into back up a little bit. But, uh, but he, cuts, he cuts these special stones. We're going to talk about all that in a moment. But he's, he, these stones are, are, are built with such love and care and precision that um, they were deliberately, miraculously dismantled from the base of Mikdash before the destruction of the first temple, buried deep underground in a Gniza, in a repository in a, in, of, of, of holy objects, um, so that... And then, and then replaced by special stones by angels with stones and dirt from elsewhere to satisfy the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar who would destroy the first temple. But the original beautiful stones that Shlomo cut would be then stored away for future days so that when the temple would be rebuilt, it would, uh, it would, it would share those. And that's learned from a Pasuk. It, the, the Pasuk, it, it talks about the building of the temple and it says, Bibais so as it's being built, um, because it, we're referring to the future tense, in the same building will be rebuilt as as well. But not if it weren't for the second base of Mikdash. Not for the second, only for the final, the third and final base of Mikdash of the final Melech Mashiach. The stones for their part, for their part, had to be whole. They couldn't have apihalacha, the slightest blemish or crack. How would you know the Rambam describes this? He says that if a person would run his fingernail, I'm sorry if this is giving you uh, 
yeah, you know, making you feel uncomfortable here, but if you, if you held, if you ran your fingernail over the stone and you might get a little nick in your fingernail, that indicated the stone was not smooth enough. Had to be, a, a, again, of, of, of exactitude. Um, but we have those stones today. Like, we can see some of them. No, not those stones. Remember I said that the original stones were hidden. But the same, the same kind of, like, the same... Stone, stone. Not these stones, but the same stone. There is somebody in your shalim who conjectures that the guesses that the wall, the stones that we see in the, the Western Wall are stones that date back not like the consensus view from Herod from the late Second Temple period, but actually back to David and Shlomo. Don't know. I think I think everybody's no, but not guessing. Even if it's the same stones, because you said they were hidden, but the same stone, like same style. You yeah, want to say maybe? I think, I think that's also something that we can't say with certainty. Do we know, do we know what maybe. type of stones basically that went into the? Uh, yeah, from the local the local stone, and that's limestone. Oh, I thought you were talking about the. I mean, they're called they're called the Avne Shoham. That's how they're referred to in in the Pesukim. Um, Usually, when people build buildings, the Gemara Menachos says this, um, we bring in, we bring in, we make windows in order to bring in light, to refract the light in from the outside. When Shlomo built the building, the windows in the base of Mikdash, he had them inverted so that the light shining from Hashem's building would, sh- would shine out on the world. I use this as just one, I, this is not a shear in the base of Mikdash, but it could be, and I'm tempted to, but I'm not going to do that right now I, for, for lack of time. But we could go into every single detail of the building of the base of Mikdash has moral significance, has kedusha, has something that we can expound for our purposes to understand. It itself was a lesson in how to lead a holy life. Um, Medrash tells us if the non-Jews recognized just how beneficial the base of Mikdash was for them, they would have posted full-time sentries to protect it. When we just had Sukkot now a few days ago, and when, during our Nisu Hamayim, during the water libations, and particularly at Roshan Araba, when we performed the, uh, the Hakafos with the Aravos, the world, if we did our job properly, was, was promised ample rain in the coming season. That was not just for the Jewish people, that actually was a promise for the entire world. And when they destroyed the base of Mikdash, they ruined it, the Gemara and Sukkah tells us, for themselves. The Medrash Tanchuma says that if, when non-Jews davened by the temple, Hashem granted them their request. Uh, which is interesting, because when Jews davened by the base of Mikdash, um, He gave them their request if they're very deserving, but sometimes the answer was no. Um, the uh, Tanhuma explains the difference is, is by the non-Jews, if Hashem doesn't grant their wishes, they may come to deny his, his omnipotence, but, and, and that, that would be a chil Hashem, but Jews being more sophisticated in their, in their spirituality would understand that if Hashem said no, that that meant, okay, you know, that maybe that was not what was best for me, not, not what I needed. So is that true for like non was there a concept of like non secular Judaism back then? Or no, everyone was Jewish. Um, back in the days of Shlomo and all the way in, until the until the early Second Temple times, um, everybody was Yerushalayim, held by the Torah, kept the mitzvahs, <laughs> even idolatrous Jews, and, which is the theme that we're going to elaborate on. 
There was no such things as sectarianism. Nobody came and said, oh, we're an alternate brand of Judaism. That started with the Tzlukim and the Baitusim and what are they called, the Sadducees and the Baitusim and the, and, the, and the other sects in the Second Temple period, and there was nothing like that today. There were people who were Rishayim, but even the Rishayim would be the, the, the wicked ones, would be the first to tell you, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm off. I'm not the Seder. Uh, they understood the Torah was true, they understood the, the way the universe worked, yeah. and they just didn't tell the line. But not that they, that they said, oh no, there's an alternate it's form of like Judaism. Divine, was that like a divine thing? Like, was that God? No, that was all through freedom of choice. It's a, it's a. I mean, this is clearly one of those things we're gonna, we're gonna get into much greater depth as we talk about the evolution of the sects, and especially in later times, like we'll do a whole section on the Karaites, and then of course in modern times, Reform, conservative, Reconstructionist, and other kinds of sectarian Jews. Um, but there's not, there's nothing like a sectarian Judaism. Really, it's a, it's a mis, it's a misnomer to call it Reform Judaism. There is no such thing technically as Reform Judaism. There's Judaism. There's Torah. Right? All these others are imitators. Reform Judaism is a branch, more accurately, of Presbyterian Christianity. They have much more in common, what I'm really saying is they have much more in common with Presbyterianism in their ideals and their fundamental uh, tenets than they have with anything that we, that we would recognize as Judaism. But by freedom of choice, every Jew back then, that there was no divine inspiration that caused that every Jew. Like, no, it, it was simply a recognition of MS. It was the relatively high level when we lived in times of prophecy, people looked around and understood the emiss. Oh, okay. That makes sense, yeah. And it's something, see, it's hard for us to relate to because we don't have that, so we kind of project, it's one of our, right. you know, project, back projections of our own reality back in time. But no, when you saw the emiss, yeah, people lived in immensely spiritual, um, they had an immensely spiritual consciousness. So, yeah, there was no, you know, you had prophets, they told you the word of God, you believed them, you understood that, that that was authentic. And, and we'll see this. I mean, all, these are nice, it's a nice introduction to this time period because we're going to see all of this now beautifully illustrated in the activities of the day. Shlomo goes to Givon. How can a prophet be proven as a prophet? Um, well, his predictions have to come true, and we're going to do a section on prophecy, so hold off for a minute. Shlomo then goes to Givon, and he takes the remnants of the Mishkan. He takes the Mizbeach that Moshe had built, that, was, that was still existed, from Moshe Rabbeinu, the altar from Moshe Rabbeinu, and um, he installs it in the, in the uh, area of the Beis HaMikdash. Um, the Moshe's Menorah, Moshe's golden Mizbeach, the Mizbeach HaZahav, had already been lost. He sends north to the king of, the, of Lebanon in the north um, for the cedars of Lebanon, for the uh, Arzea Lebanon, um, he exchanges them later, he gives 20 cities. He goes down, there's a tent down in Ir David in the south of the area of Har Maria. Can you picture Har Maria, the Temple Mount? In the, there's a tent that David had installed there. What's, what's in that tent? I, I've mentioned this before, there's a tent. The, uh, the what, what, what? The Aaron Kodesh. Kodesh. Remember David dancing it up and being criticized by his wife Michal? So that's been there. Shlomo goes down to fetch the Aaron Kodesh from that tent. He installs it also in the uh, in the uh, mikdash. What's that? He carries it back. He has it. In, he has it brought back. He sanctifies the mikdash. The behibanoso um, also indicates that the basin mikdash built itself. Uh, Shlomo had all kinds of assistance, but ultimately um, he had he had the, the the thing itself went up and was was self composed as it were, and. 
at this point, as, as the sanctification is taking place, Hashem fills the base of Mikdash with His glory, thereby you can't fall asleep during this. Hashem fills the base of Mikdash for the first time in the universe. This is what all of the creation was, was poised and, and directed to it for this moment, and Hashem filled the base of Mikdash that Shlomo has just built with His full glory to indicate His approval of what's been done. It's Kavod Hashem. He's, um, the Medrash tells us that Shlomo's name itself is called Shlomo because he, Shlomo means completion. He's Sholem. He is now, get this, effectively completed Maise Breshis with the building of the, of, of the Beis HaMikdash. You remember the Medrash, we started the history class with this discussion when it says from last week's parsha, Breshis Bara Elohim, that is a reference to the building of the Beis HaMikdash. When it says later, the land was chaos, that's a reference to the Chorban Beis HaMikdash, the destruction. And finally, when it, talks, when it says, and Hashem says, let, let there be light, that's a reference to Mashiach, the final Geula, the final redemption. All anticipated the beginning of time, and this moment was, it was a moment that creation itself had anticipated. And that's the name Shlomo. That's one understanding of the name Shlomo. He built in, 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 in the outside structure two gates. One gate was designated for, um, for bridegrooms. The other one was designated for mourners and people who were ostracized, what are called menudim, who were excommunicated. Um, it was a chesed, meaning the temple itself was predicated on chesed. It was all about people and serving, serving people. On Shabbos, what was the point of the chesed? On Shabbos, these people would gather, all the people would gather there um, in order to alternately celebrate the simchas of the, of the grooms and then commiserate with its surus, with the sadness of the people who were in mourning or who were, who were outcasts. What do you mean by outcasts? Well, outcasts meaning they were excommunicated. People, they're all, there's, that's another thing that, you, that we learn. There's all kinds of people who, by dint of their, let's say they don't answer the summons of a Beistin and they don't go to Beistin, so the Beistin has one of its tools at its disposal is it can, it can excommunicate somebody. Put them in the Cherim. And there are different levels of Cherim. Some of those people can gather by the gates and they're, you know, it's a hard existence. So people can at least have empathy, even though on, the cer on a certain level, they're bad guys who we should be uh, excoriating, but that's not the way we treat our bad guys. We want them to make tshuva too. Can someone be put in the Cherim and come out? Yes. Also yes. Also Tzaras, there are all kinds of remedies. Yeah, anyway, but, but picture this. I'm trying to give you a hands-on, workable uh, image that you can, you can call to mind when you're picturing the base of Mikdash. The base of Mikdash was not just some random, random building somewhere with a bunch of pretty, uh, you know, pretty installed uh, you know, cedars of Lebanon. It was something that was built with attention to detail, and the detail was meant to teach us how to lead a full and, 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 uh, and moral life. And, and chesed was built in to the structure. Um, the Gemara Yoma also tells us that a, we compare a forest which blossoms and produces fruit, and Shlomo incorporated that into building the temple. He, create, he planted what the, what's described as me'en atzeperos, a kind of magical tree in the base of Mikdash, uh, real trees would be usher because you can't have an asherah, you can't have anything in the base of Mikdash. But these, these magical trees um, bore golden fruit 
in season, in, 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 like if they were, let's say, peach trees, when the peaches would, would come into season, would come into bloom in the fields, the golden peach trees, whatever they were, in the base of Mikdash would yield golden fruits in sync with that. Uh, based on the natural so seasons. Like, those people, also are, people also are included in that outcast people? Or they no, they're a different thing, and they're on the outer. They're in the outer camp, so they would they could they couldn't be there. No, no, there's certain people who can't go to the base and make that. Isn't there a hill in Jerusalem somewhere called like the Sarah Hill? No, we don't know where any of this is. No, there's a, there's a lot of lot of things that we can guess, but that's that's about as good as it gets. With the base of Mikdash now officially complete, vamos become permanently forbidden. Remember the vamos, the high places, the offerings? We could do it while, in, while the Mishkan was in Gilgal, while it was in Nov and Givon. Now we have a base in Mikdash. Even after the Chorba base in Mikdash, vamos, you cannot build your own backyard altar and offer it to a Kaddish Baruch. We talked about the story of Eliyahu and Navi. That was the one exception where Shkut Echutz was permitted. But, our ordin- but otherwise, the whole enterprise is from now on permanently usher. Tfila. From this point on in history, will now permanently, and it would never, it was not like this before, but from this point, Tefillah was now directed to Eretz Yisrael, and within Eretz Yisrael, it was directed to Yushalayim, and within Yushalayim, it's directed towards the base of Mikdash itself, from this point on in history. What's that? Right, you don't need a Mizrach. I mean, it's, as somebody asked yesterday, he said, which side is Mizrach? Because we were standing in Tveria from, for, uh, from Mincha. I said, you don't need Mizrach when you're in Tveria. You need Southwest. Because relative to Yerushalayim, we were in the Northeast. So it's all, in everything, our, our center of gravity, our point of reference, our orientation is the base of Mikdash itself from this point on in history. Um, the Kodesh Kedoshim, the holiest place in the universe, the Holy of Holies, which now um, houses... Remember, Shlomo built a lot from scratch. Elements of the Mishkan that could be incorporated, he used. Other elements we'll talk about all shortly. The Kalim, all the Kalim not all the Kalim. Each one is its own discussion. Some were used, some were not. In the Kodesh Kedoshim, you have the Aron Kodesh itself inside the Aron Kodesh. <laughs> You have the first shattered Luchos Abris, the shattered Ten Commandments, plus the second whole Luchos Abris. Uh, there's the Jar of Man, there's the, there, there are a number of things. We'll talk about all of this. Right, there are, remember the golden Torim and Achbarim, the gifts from the Philistines after they'd stolen the Aaron Kodesh, and then they came back with a tribute because they realized that they'd gotten in over their heads. Um, from this point, this point in the universe, this, this area in the universe that we, that we refer to as the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh Kedoshim, is now off limits to everybody, everybody, including angels, with the one exception of the Kohen Gadol and Yom Kippur. Even angels can't go in. That's why the, at the, in the late Second Temple period, they had to tie the rope. I just mentioned this on, on Yom Kippur. They had to tie the rope to extract the bodies of the dead Kohen Gadols who weren't worthy. But even angels couldn't go in. The only exception is an angel could go in to remove a dead body that otherwise couldn't be removed. But otherwise, only the Kohen Gadol could legally, legally go in. All of Am Yisrael celebrates... This is an immense celebration. This is very relevant to the period we're just finishing. They celebrate 14 days of celebration, and these 14 days overlap with Yom Kippur. There's a whole discussion there. They ate on Yom Kippur, the one time in history, and that was permitted, and it's a discussion how that was permitted. 
the, 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 the Mishnah discusses this period because it says till today, the period that overlaps with these 14 days includes those non-yantiv days between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And that's why if a person should have, let's say, a yard site for a father or a mother that fell out in those days, they wouldn't fast. The midnight is to fast on the yard site because those days are eternally days of simple and celebration. We do not fast um, today. Today, today there's a midnight to fast on one's parents' yard site, but the yard site coincides even with the day between, with uh, let's say the um, the twelfth of Tishrei, which is between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, you would not, because the days that are defined as being days of elation and simple. Yeah. Uh, Wait, yeah why, why were they allowed to look upon the Anakadesh before? Uh, <coughs> Who said they were, he was allowed to look at it? We're not discussing that. I didn't say anything about that. I said he brought it up. I didn't say he looked at it. Be careful. Right, we have to be careful with that. And I have to be careful too. You realize we're covering such huge topics. And even though maybe, it, maybe, maybe some of you feel I'm talking way too much, but I'm actually really giving you the bare basics. Um, and in, in doing that, I run the risk of misconveying mis the information. There's a lot to be said about this. I'm trying to be as precise as I can. What do you want? Oh really? Oh for sure. People pass in their parents' yard, say. Oh yeah, absolutely. Very, very. I mean, yes. I in the parish on that. The the one of the parish that we read it. Anyway, the the Jews to the one cliff and one said the curse, and the other one said the blessing. Yes, correct. And Hargrisim and Haraeva, we talked about it here. They looked in the area, but didn't look inside. They don't I look inside. Look inside. Right, right, that's the issue. That's the issue. How can we look at the menorah right like in front of the crystal today that's supposed to be the menorah that's being suggested in the back? How can it's not like, it, it kind of looks like pretty dull? Yeah, let, you know, let's reserve this. I have what to say about the, um, the what they called the Temple Institute. Well, we talked about it a little bit a, 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 a couple weeks ago, too. As opposed to overkilling the, the topic, um, we'll, we'll get that in, in its own time. There is, you should be aware, a general prohibition against recreating vessels for the base of Mikdash. I think these people are motivated because they believe that they're creating the vessels for the base of Mikdash, but that's subject to debate, the whether they're really doing it or not. The menorah, if you look at it, it's slightly bent. It's also a massive machlokus rishonim about what shape the menorah actually should be. That being one one view, but you know that's the that's the Ibn Ezra, the Balitosul's view that it's a curved menorah. But you know Rashi and Rambam and others hold that the menorah actually um, the the branches of the menorah were at um, were on were on a diagonal coming off and and straight and straight branches, not curved at all. And there's a big discussion around all this whether we can, whether it's even relevant for us to paskin today. What was the image of the menorah when, um, when it, it, when many hold that Eliyahu Navi is necessary to be able to, uh, uh, Eliyahu Navi is necessary to be able to clarify these ambiguity. We just don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know. Yes. In Yom outside of uh, outside of the old city, they had they had the ark. They they made a ark with the two. Uh, yeah, two. they did. Yeah, it was weird. But yeah, question. Like, these are all questions. I know. I thought it was. But they're not like no. The most the biggest thing to prove wrong is that it's not like that menorah doesn't look like the menorah school. Like it's, it's I, like like I wouldn't prove. I don't like proving. But I would say it's not very persuasive. Not very persuasive. Yeah, what they what like they've created. 
Right. I love guiding there. Don't get me wrong. Maybe we'll go there. Maybe that'll be one of our visits that we that we that we go out into the field and, and, and visit this year. And I have a lot to say on the subject. They they, they do provide a great educational um, model to, to to be able to learn a lot from. So many details, and it's so helpful in this area to visualize. To you know, they have three dimensional models. They have excellent pictures. Um, but uh, but take it with a grain of salt. It's not not always to be taken literally. The Shlomo knows when the Basin Mikdash, he knows that this is not the final and, and, and um, that the Basin Mikdash will be destroyed one day. Um, in order of holiness and, and significance of the four houses that existed, that, that will or have existed, um, to, to, that are the house of the Shechina, the holiest is the last, what we call Bay Shlishi, the third temple. In relative importance, the second holiest is the first temple that we're describing now. Third is the Mishkan in the desert. A lowly fourth is the second temple. Um, he knows, though, that this is only one version and it's not going to be long term. And so he designates way down deep below the temple mounts, deep mechilos, tunnels, like a maze, like a labyrinth down there where he hides many of the vessels, and I mentioned that um, he didn't need all of the Mishkan for uh, the <coughs> temple, and that's fine, and yet the Mishkan, you remember, if you look back in Parshish Truma and elsewhere in the Torah, was built with incredible Nedivu slave. The Jews got so into the act, they, they poured their kishkas into making each section of the Mishkan, and Hashem loved that and promised them that eventually those would all be used somehow in the third temple. If they were not needed for Shlomo's temple, he therefore hid them down beneath to be preserved as a repository to be preserved for uh, the future days. Lasid Lavo. Um, those included things like the Krushav and the Krasav and the Uvrichav, Amudav, Adanav, and, and so on, as is as listed in the Gemara and Sota. We also know, and I mentioned this earlier, but I'll remind you, the Zohar tells us that in the same area, deep down, um, some 1,500 Amos, cubits beneath the area of the temple was somewhere down there a magic spell cast by and remember Balak Balak cast this spell beneath the foundations of the base of Mikdash as a way of undermining the building remember that's why Moshe Rabbeinu deeply desired to enter the land to remove the spell and I mentioned it by David remember David was digging down there and maybe he was also motivated to, um, to somehow remove the spell of Balak, but apparently the curse is there and may arguably exist till today, and that's why we get flack from our, uh, our cousins, the Bnei Ishmael, who uh, continue to dominate in that site. He now, as you correctly, you were ahead of yourself, but he now, Shlomo builds his own palace. Um, again, he takes longer. He goes about conquering lands. He, he elaborates, expands the borders of Eretz Yisrael for Am Yisrael. The land now, the borders reach all the way from the Euphrates River in today's Iraq to Egypt. He owns thousands of horses. And we'll have to talk about that because that's, that's a violation. He, um, he's visited by people around the world, including the likes of the brilliant Malka Shva. Um, some say she's actually a male. Uh, go look at the Medrash there. But um, the simple shot is it's the queen of, Sh of Shiva, perhaps from Ethiopia. She's herself brilliant. She poses a famous uh, whole section. Um, she poses three riddles. She's overwhelmed by his greatness. 
Um, if you can find it, I'm not going to go into this now because it's really, it's, it's, it's an interesting story, but it, it's, it's ah, we can get lost in Shlomo. We can spend the whole year on Shlomo. But if you're, if you're intrigued by any of this, I, I, I do this in greater depth in my um, Sefer Malachim Shir. So you can look that up online and try to find the relevant uh, discussion on Malkat Shva. Now, next section. Martin Darim tells us, had Yisrael not sinned, keep you with me? Yep. Good. Um, had Yisrael not sinned, there would have been no Tanakh, save for the Chumash, the five books of Moshe, and save for Yoshua. What does that tell us? What is the Gemara really telling us? So there was no this is the Gemara in Nadarim. There was no need for the rest of the Tanakh. All we really need is the Chumash to spell everything out, and Yoshua to tell us how it then it, 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 it goes into the land of Eretz Yisrael and is now applicable in Eretz Yisrael. But the rest was theoretically superfluous if we hadn't sinned. What the Gemara is really saying is the rest of the Tanakh is to be understood and it's a good introduction to, to a Tanakh class. It's about sin. And that's what we need to study. You learn Tanakh as Musr or you don't learn Tanakh. You don't, you, there's nothing to be gained unless, unless, you're, um, unless you're understanding it. This is something that is going to repeat as we now delve deeper into the Tanakh and we understand these times because what do you make of the fact that the Tanakh tells us relatively little about the actual 40 years that Shlomo ruled? There's a lot about the beginning, a lot about the end, a lot about the bad stuff. If you just read the Tanakh, you'd come away with the impression that Shlomo was a terrible fellow. What's that? Eh, actually, a good fellow, too. There's a lot that's very positive, too, but there's a lot that's negative. What's that? Um, Shlomo, we're going to get to that. Hold off. Hold off. You're, you're ahead of me. You're, you're ahead of me. I, he, he, was a, he wrote books, and they're very significant books, but I'm not there yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold off, hold off, hold off. Um, so it doesn't tell us very much because you know why? Who wrote Malachi? Shmuel. Shmuel's dead. Yeah. I don't know if you knew that. I hope you're okay with that. What? Any of the else want to guess? Yirmiyahu Navi. The Gemara Bhagavad tells us Yirmiyahu Navi. And Yirmiyahu Navi, like everybody writing a Sefer in the Tanakh, has an agenda. He wants to give us Musr. He wants to teach us how to live a good life. Therefore, do you ever notice that Tanakh tends, tends towards negativity? It tells us, it dishes a lot of dirt. Because that's what a Navi does. He doesn't sit around telling you, oh, you know, and then Shlomo said a bracha before he ate his Cheerios for breakfast. You know, that's nice, but it doesn't add to our... We knew that Shlomo does that. And, or, I don't know if he ate Cheerios, but that, that was just my artistic license but um, but but we know that he that you know that things are good but you don't learn from that there is an emphasis on the negativity which gives a misconception that the times were negative these times that, that the Tanakh covers are almost you know, are in many ways very very positive and when you see the negative it's because we're that's what we need to learn that's the, that's the negative and I mean I, I have to say this it's it, it's incredibly important the 40 years that defined Shlomo's reign were almost, not entirely, definitely not entirely, but almost perfect. They're, just, they're, they're, they're defined by a transcendence. The times are sublime. As the very important pasuk in the fourth chapter of Malachim tells us, Yehuda v'Yisrael rabim kachol alayam larov, Yehuda, the tribe of Judah, and Yisrael at large were so vast 
They were like sand on the sea for their multitude. Ochlin v'shosin usmechin. This is what's characteristic of these times, and you, you rarely hear this properly emphasized. They ate, drank, and rejoiced. The population boomed. There were no wars. Can you imagine? There were no wars. There were no famines. There were no diseases. The economy skyrocketed. Vayeshev Yehuda v'Yisrael avetach. The, the Jewish people, Am Yisrael, dwelled securely. Ish, ta, get this image firmly ensconced in your memory. Ish tachas gafno v'sachas te'inaso. Each man under his grapevine, each man under his fig tree. That's pretty good. You got one, you got one right above your head there, Akiva. Fig tree. Midana v'ad Beersheba, which is the Tanakh's ways of, of, of encapsulating all of Eretz Yisrael from the far north of Dan. We were sort of close there yesterday in the tribe of Dan in the far north, all the way down to the far south extremity of Beersheba. Kol Yemei Shlomo. The land was full of happy people. And you have to, you have to bask in this time because it's otherwise uncharacteristic of the rest of history. We topped out. It's when we picture the Yemei Mashiach, we picture the final days of David and the almost the entire period of Shlomo Amalek's rule. It is the closest taste we will have in history to perfection and to the days of the final redemption. So that's why these days are of immense consequence and it, it's worthy of us to, um, to understand them. Um, I, there's, a cloud, there's a cloud on the horizon because um, when you hit the top, there's only one direction that you can go in without actually reaching redemption. And I don't know if you know this, we actually weren't redeemed in these days. So there was only one way and that was down and we went very, very far down. But that's the rest of this class. If you hit the top, the top is becoming that cloud again. Almost. We were almost there. Almost there. We were as close as, as humanity has ever gotten and we didn't make it. That's contrary to... Um, I was talking to you about this. That's contrary to like the way that modern modern society would say that modern Anapusia. And we talked about that. If you remember at the very beginning of this class, I addressed that. And even moderns, enlightened, enlightened people, modernists, admit that with the with the advents of technology and humanity can only but after being blasted by this thing that they like to call the 20th century and genocide and barbarity uh, on a sophisticated level. Uh, increasingly, people are finding that it's not quite. Maybe we, maybe we aren't, you know, responsible for our own progress, and uh, it coincides with an increasing return towards religion. When people realize maybe it's not in humans, the hands of humanity without God to uh, redeem the world. Maybe in fact it was better before, and that's certainly the Jewish view that it was better before. A few more things about Shlomo before we wind down. Shlomo was the head of the Sanhedrin. That's Gemara Makos, although it's interesting because he also had somebody who served under him who was called the Rosh Sanhedrin, that's Benayahu. He was his leading man. It's not clear how their roles were divided. Shlomo made a number of famous takanos that affect halacha till today. It was Shlomo who instituted the, the, the uh, concept of eruvin, all kinds of eruvin, most famously those that make a city uh, like an extended private residence. Shlomo was the one who instituted Natilis Yadaim for Kutchi, you had to wash your hands, and based on that, 
later on, the Gemara Shabbos and, uh, explains this, that we now wash our hands before eating bread. But that, that, that originates with Shlomo's Takana, his decree. Um, Shlomo, with his father, instituted the third bracha in Birka Samozo, namely, Uvnei Yerushalayim Yerakodesh Bimirav Yamenu, that was instituted understanding that this was not the final building of Yerushalayim. Shlomo prohibited ribis with non-Jews um, for non-scholars. Ribis? Ribis, interest. Right, you couldn't, you couldn't somehow uh, be involved with interest unless the people were under duress. He had a lot of important decrees. His chinuch system, he had a system of educating the people, was almost unequaled. Uh, the Gemara says that actually Chizkiyahu's was even better. His descendant Chizkiyahu was even better. Um, Klal Yisrael reached a high point in learning Torah. Shlomo authored three great books. The Gemara says it was Chizkiyahu, but we'll explain that later on. Let's say Shlomo authored the book of Mishle, which is best translated as? Proverbs. No. Parables. Proverbs is a Goyesha concept. <laughs> Proverbs means like something you put on your calendar every day, right? You know, like penny saved is a penny earned, you know, make you feel chipper in the morning kind of thing. No, that's a reduction of the profundity of Mishle. Mishle are parables. And oh, not true. Oh, you're wrong about that. And, and especially with the perush of the Vilna Gaon, you will understand human psychology better when you read Mishle with the perush and Chazal. Uh, emphasize Mishle. So it's not true that nobody studies it. It's, it, it, it's central. They never, I never, until now, since the issue started. Oh, I recommend it. I think you should that. study Mishle. It's, it's, uh, it's very important. And, and, and the non Jews, you know, the problem is they don't understand Mishle. They don't understand most of these books. They can't, they can't understand the Mish, the Mashal, Mashal, which means the parable, because they don't understand the Nimshal, meaning they don't understand what's being. Described in most of Mishle is Klal Yisrael, Hashem is these is these lo- are these lofty concepts, and they miss the point. They miss the forest through the, through the trees. If you don't understand the Nimshal, you can't understand the Mashal. Shlomo authored Kohelis, Ecclesiastes near the end of his life. Shir Shirim is also also to be near the end of his of, of his life. The Song of Songs. Kohelis, is that the one about we just learned Kohelis. It was yeah, read. It's read on Shabbos Cholamoy Sukkis. Correct, correct. It's the foundation of morality, Kohelis. It's the foundation of Perkyavos. Um, it's it's uh, very misunderstood. It's one of the books that Chazal thought to put in the Gniza because it could be misunderstood. There, there could be Sukim in the wrong hands that are interpreted to mean absolutely terrible things. Um, but, but we understand... Uh, uh, it's really... I mean, I said to Barak in my sukkah, we were talking about it, what, um, Kohelis seems like a downer. You, you study Kohelis? You should. Take yeah, time to right, right, study Kohelis. Right. It seems kind of kind of negative. Hevel havloim amar Kohelis. Vanity of vanities. It's actually the ultimate in Simcha. That's why I say it's really fitting on, on Sukkot. Because it teaches you a sane, sober, mature, sophisticated kind of Simcha. When you recognize that the only true Simcha is delighting in Hashem and in His Torah and His mitzvahs. And that's what Kohelis kind of, as, as Kohelis has all command of the whole world and he has all wealth and everything at his disposal, he realizes that it's all about serving Hashem. It's very existentialist. Absolutely. Well, no, that's misunderstood. That's, I know what you mean, and I don't disagree. 
I think that when you say statements like that that are by definition reductive, they reduce sublime concept to something, it's so easily misunderstood. He's not one of the, what he's, you're telling me Shlomo's like a modern, was, was an ancient Albert Camus? Uh, okay, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's not what it's about, and I'm over time, so let me just finish. I have one, one, last, one last thought. He was a master statesman who inherited large tracts of land from his father, but as you said, we expa he expanded them. He became incredibly wealthy through taxation. He used the taxes mainly for tzedakah. He was a huge Baal Chesed. And this is Shlomo in his grandeur, in his greatness, and that's how we're meant to really understand the man. And it's all downhill from here as we begin. Come on time, because it's important what happens. What does he do wrong? Uh, that we'll do on Sunday, Bezras Hashem.